And good and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema brought to you again by Dark Matter TV. TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. This is my fourth installment for my limited sub-series on my personal uh, bouts with cinema and dealing with it. i called the, right now I'm calling it the 80s road to cinema. And uh, where I left off, I've been covering how I kind of got into filmmaking as a kid, worked my way through middle school and even high school, and the last episode talking about pretty much how I sat on my laurels and uh, didn't do much in the way of, of really challenging myself or expanding my horizons and, and got quite comfortable in the small pond that I was swimming around in. And that's going to uh, really make me pay a big price. And so I, when I left for college, which I talked about in my previous episode, I, I went to Penn State. I opted for a smaller campus instead of going to main campus, which I was also accepted to. Uh, to, to keep that big fish in small pond syndrome. I didn't push myself up there either. It, it was more of a screwing around, messing around with a cheerleader down the hall and uh, just kind of continuing the, the, the level of filmmaking work that I had been doing in high school without really expanding. Uh, we were talking about in the last episode also about the expansion of technology, even though it was still crude by today's standards, but the video revolution for the consumer end of things was really taking off. And I should have taken far more advantage of that. I even had a friend who by the mid eighties, uh, his family had a, a camcorder that, that wasn't really a camcorder, it was a video camera that attached to the portable block, the, the, the porta pack uh, that it was attached to. It was a GE, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I could have had access uh, to a video camera to really try to do more and, and even write more and go beyond the slapstick short subject comedies that I was working on. I was in college and as I had mentioned in my last episode, pretty much failed out. And let me just kind of give some context to all of this. Uh, when I was in college, I mean, look, I'm not making excuses or anything, anything like that, but movies made out college to be like these hallowed halls. And, and once you get to college, life is different and everything's going to be far more expansive. And I, I just can't explain it, but college was like this mecca that movies and television groomed you for. And when you got there, at least for me, and maybe that's part of it, maybe there there really was no wide landscape or, or anything exciting to, to really even give me a visual difference. But for me, college was 13th grade. And I think that's pretty much the way I wanted it. Uh, the campus that I went to at Hazleton and Penn State was very small and uh, comprised of a few buildings. And you lived off campus. They did have some dorm living there, but I didn't do it. I stayed in an apartment off of uh, West Central Avenue in Hazleton. And I lived with a bunch of rowdy, wild roommates and, and had a great time. But overall... Uh, there, there really was no change in landscape from the small town that I grew up in and went to high school in. So there really wasn't much of a change. So when I got to this campus, 
I, I sat in classes that I, I remember at one point in one of my English classes, and I talked about this big paper that I did for uh, my, my last episode where it was define the word bad for English. And I think I did like 16 pages on this, and I thought it was just the greatest thing ever. When I sat in these classes, and I'm using my English classes, the example, I remember the professor gave us like 15 minutes to write five paragraphs on something. I, I, I can't remember. And I remembered looking around the room, and you saw their kids going like, oh my God, five paragraphs, and he's only giving us 15 minutes. I'm like, what the hell are you people talking about? Like, I did this in my sleep. And, and most of all, I, I was doing this in 10th grade. My, my teacher in high school was already giving us assignments that were far more challenging than this. And I remembered thinking like, so this is college. This is the big deal. And what a ripoff is really what I thought. And, and to be fair, I wasn't challenging myself anyway. And I was doing nothing to really put forth any kind of major effort into this. And I just gave up. I was kind of like, I'm not doing this. And, and as I had said in part three, you know, didn't go to class. They handed out the syllabus for each class. And I looked as to when they were going to give the tests. And I just showed up for the tests. And, and to give myself a little credit here, I did extremely well on the tests, which is why I was surprised the day I handed in this big, illustrious paper um, that my professor, my English professor looked at me and he, he just said, he goes, well, I'm glad you, you really did a great job on the paper because I'm failing you. So I was flunking out and I did not take a film class other than a film criticism course. And I mentioned this in a previous episode about Psycho 2. I had a professor that, that just laid into me at one point uh, when I discussed in my film class that I offered my opinion that I felt that Psycho 2 for me, was much more enjoyable than Psycho because I went in with a preconceived notion of hating Psycho 2 because I felt it could never measure up to the original. And I was surprised to find out that I actually enjoyed Psycho 2 so much that I saw it again the same day. I paid money to get a ticket. I walked out of the first show, bought a ticket, and walked into the second show. So for me, none of this was was measuring up to this preconceived notion that I had. Now, I had a bunch of roommates that were off the wall and, and I could write a, an entire series or sitcom just on this roommate situation. But one thing that they thought was so fascinating was that I was able to track down celebrities by phone at a time when you, you really, you, you just, you were dialing uh, 555-1212 and that was directory assistance. That That's what I was doing and I was tracking down these celebrities uh, you Today, I guess you would call it stalking, although I didn't bother them. I just did it once to show that I could do it. And I often lied and I said that I was uh, you know, a writer uh, for the Penn State Collegian and I was a film writer and, and I was trying to get an interview. And this is going to play into something coming up. But today's episode also focuses on the cynicism of something else. And that is one night we went to go see a, a couple of my roommates and I we went to go see A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, and we saw it up at this local, musty old movie theater, and it was still a first-run theater, but I'm, I'm telling you, it was like stepping back in time, and this theater had seen better days, and I remember it was called the Hersker Theater. I, I don't know if, if one of the neon lights burned out on it, I can't remember, but it was Hersker, and uh, I don't think it's there anymore. It was a privately owned theater, and we sat down. 
and we saw Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Now, to be fair, we were totally stoned and baked out of our minds. But we loved the first film, and I was a huge fan of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And we were excited that this thing was burgeoning into a franchise, or at least it looked it. And so we watched this movie, and by the end of the film, I, I really can't say that we really cared for it. Now, I'm friends with Jack Shoulder, uh, social media friends with Jack Shoulder, the director, and social media friends with Mark Patton. And um, I ended up dating a girl who was one of the bikini babes at the uh, ending pool scene. And I dated her when I moved to California, and I'll get into that in a little bit before this phone call that, that transformed my life. I remembered walking out of the theater. Look, I was 18 years old, and what did I know? But thinking, nah, that, that's this isn't the sequel they should have done. And what the hell did Freddy avenge? I mean, it's called Freddy's Revenge. What what was he avenging? I, I still don't know. And I didn't like the fact that they they got rid of Nancy and they they made her out to be a basket case and they locked her away. And her diary was just conveniently found uh, by Mark Patton and as his Jesse character. And, and there was just a lot about the film that I didn't care for. Now, I will say, and to this day, I will defend uh, the uh, practical special effects in that film were, were just staggering. And I thought fantastic. And to this day, still hold up. But that's a whole thing. I'm not getting into a review of A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. What I'm going for is, is that the 18-year-old me really didn't care for it. And I ended up going home that night and writing out a treatment, believe it or not, for A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. And this is where it gets a little dicey. So for all of you out there, and I wrote about this and I talked about this as well in my one episode for easy access to me. I'm going to make it very clear. Any of you that have a great story and uh, please do not approach me via social media and especially by DMing me on Twitter. Do not do that and pitch me your story. I'm not going to listen to it. I don't want to see it, uh, especially if it is not copyrighted and if it is not guarded in some way. I'm telling you, do at the minimum the poor man's copyright and take your idea, flesh it all out, write it out as deeply as you can and simply mail it to yourself and never open it because then it's called a poor man's copyright and it is some kind of legal proof that the idea and the concept is yours. I don't steal ideas or anything like that. And I don't want to be pitched to them, especially in a cold, hey, here's, I'm slipping into your DMs with this story idea. Don't do it because I don't read them and I just instantly delete them. So I, I want nothing to do with any of that. But I didn't know this at 18 years of age. So I wrote out this detailed treatment and then I fleshed it out and wrote a screenplay for A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. This is the other part. I couldn't take the time to go to class, but I could take the time on a long shot, a nobody sitting in Hazleton, Pennsylvania to write a script for A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Who the hell is going to look at this? And on top of it, I'm writing it on an electric typewriter, okay? No, no word processing, no nothing. So I write out this script and I decide through the magic of directory assistance I'm going to contact New Line Cinema because at this time they were really small and they were nobody. And I'm not going to say who I got through to, but what I can say is this person has gone on to be a major powerful figure in the Hollywood industry. 
They are no longer with New Line Cinema, but they got their start there. And I was passed on because at this point in time, the company is still a small indie company, and they passed me on to someone who was one of their script supervisors. And I got on a phone call with this person, and this person ended up saying, by the time I was done with my pitch, this is, I think, my first professional pitch. And I uh, pitched this idea, and they said, mail us the idea. And if you have a completed script, mail it to us. Well, I did. I packaged it all up, including my finished script, and I sent it to New Line Cinema. No copyright, no protection, no nothing, and no brains. I was 18 years old, and I was really goddamn stupid. Now, am I saying that New Line went on to rip off my story? And the great Frank Darabont, who you know played into Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 in the screenplay, did he steal my story? I am saying no. But there were elements that I sent to New Line Cinema that made it right into that finished thing. And the reason why is I went to go see this film with my roommates when Dream Warriors came out. And my buddies looked at me because they read my script and I told them all about it. And they said, dude, that's your movie. Not all of it, but I will give you elements. Now, to be fair, to show you what I mean, uh, about a year earlier... (laughs) Uh, I pitched the idea for a Poltergeist 2 and I actually got through to one of the producers of Poltergeist and um, this guy was so pissed that I got through and I did it on a speakerphone with my roommates present to pitch an idea for Poltergeist 2. Uh, They still had an office on MGM that I never even got the pitch done. I just called him up and this guy said, and I am not kidding you, said, how the fuck did you get my number and don't ever call us again? Well, now that I'm a professional filmmaker, I totally understand why, because he didn't want to hear anything that wasn't copyrighted, but that's what he said to me on the phone. And uh, I'm not going to say who it was, but you can narrow it down. Uh, It was two of the main producers of the original Poltergeist and the sequel. But uh, it was, and I quote, basically, how the fuck did you get my number and don't call me again and just hung up? So I get it. So anyway, I pitched this idea for Nightmare 3 and I sent it in. And years later, there were elements there. Now you're asking, well, what did you write? One of them was that Nancy returned, that Heather Legenkamp returned. And I had a big thing for Heather Legenkamp at the time. And to prove that I was well-connected in Hollywood, I remember one time I called her management with my friends, my roommates present, and I recorded the call on audio tape. And I got through saying I was uh, a a writer at the Penn State Collegian and I would like to interview Heather for a Nightmare on Elm Street interview because the second one had opened. And I talked to Heather for about 30 minutes on the phone. Now, I never bothered her again. I didn't stalk her or anything. I did it to prove a point. My roommates called me the Indiana Jones of celebrities. I could track down and find anyone. And that wasn't true, but it was still pretty cool. And they couldn't believe that I was talking to Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Again, I never bothered her again. And I actually had a really damn good interview. And to show you what I mean, I I prepared some really damn good questions at the time. I didn't waste her time, but it never went anywhere. So I kind of guess got my comeuppance because... 
I had Nancy return to A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Now, most of you are saying, well, big deal. Anybody could have written that. However, I had it that Nancy had developed a power to pull people into her dreams. And there were a group of kids on a college campus that assembled to fight Freddy in the next installment. They weren't part of a mental institution or anything like that. But I did create that and sent that to them. Did they steal it? I am not accusing them of that at all. Look, these are very general things. Somebody else could have easily come up with this. And by no means am I insulting the great work of Frank Darabont, who is light years beyond me. So I'm not having that as a takeaway from this podcast at all. Uh, I also had it that Nancy understood at the end that the only one to really who could fight Freddy was Freddy himself, and she becomes Freddy Krueger in the dream and two Freddy Kruegers square off. These were some of the ideas that I sent to New Line Cinema. Uh, they eventually just wrote back, and this executive, uh, this script supervisor wrote back and did say, we're sorry, hey, listen, a good read, but sorry about that, we're not taking it, but thank you anyway, appreciate your time, good luck with your future, and never heard from them again. Until, of course, I saw the third film and my roommates were like, dude, you wrote that shit. So um, just letting you know, copyright your stuff and never send it to anyone. Because even if they come back and tell you, no, we're not interested, that's how stuff gets stolen. All I can tell you is it is a very interesting coincidence and probably nothing more. At this point in time, I'm failing out of Penn State. Uh, I'm on academic probation. I am returning for a second semester, but look, I knew in my gut, I'm going nowhere with this. So Psycho 3 was already ramping up. There was talk of the the new film. It was shot at that point. It was coming out uh, that summer. And uh, I did my Indiana Jones thing again. And I said to my, my roommates, I said, how about we get Norman Bates on the phone? And they're like, dude, you'll never get him on the phone. I'm like, well, let's try. So I worked the magic of directory assistance in Los Angeles. And I remember I got a hold of the number of Hilton Green's uh, office. Now, I was pretty smart at this time in understanding how film worked. I knew you don't call the universal switchboard and they're going to transfer you right to Anthony Perkins. I knew that that didn't happen. So I always looked for the producers. And because they're not the big celebrity names, often you can find them. So what I did was, is I looked everything up and from reading Fangoria Magazine, understood uh, the, the different production companies that worked within Universal. Even though Universal was the big company that released it and, and financed it, there are production companies that work as a sub-level inside the studio system. So I went for the lowest hanging fruit first. I didn't go for the big enchilada of Universal. I went for the smaller end of things. And... Um, I got a hold of Hilton Green's office and I got a hold of his secretary. And this lady was great. I was talking to her. I said, well, I'm so-and-so from, you know, the Penn State Collegian. I'm doing a story on Anthony Perkins's cult status. And my, my roommates are just astounded. They can't believe this. And they're listening because we had the ability to stick this thing uh, on the side of your phone. You got it from Radio Shack. And it would record the phone call, but also act as a speaker unit as well, too. Like you could hear the call and they couldn't believe this. They're like, look at you. And she turned the tables on me. This secretary said, wait a minute. 
you're from Penn State. Now, I alluded to the fact that I was from main campus. Remember, I just said I was from Penn State. I didn't say Penn State Hazleton. She went to Penn State main campus. Now, I've been to the main campus and I'm familiar with the main campus. I was accepted to the main campus, but I chose not to go, as I said in my previous podcast episode. So I said, yes, I'm from Penn State. She goes, well, my God, I graduated from Penn State. Now we've got a, oh, moment. And I said, well, that's great. And so we started talking about some of the landmarks, um, the water tower, blah, blah, blah. And we started reminiscing about Penn State with her. And finally she said, so wait a minute. So why are you calling? And then I went further to say that at this point in time, I was thinking of moving to Los Angeles. Go out there like Steven Spielberg or Tom Cruise and I'm going to try to make it. I'm just going to be this unknown that's going to take that town by storm. And I said, uh, yeah, I'm thinking of moving out there. And she goes, when? And I said, well, I don't know, probably soon in the next couple months, the next six months. She said, I'll tell you what, you get me and bring me a Penn State hoodie sweatshirt and I'll get you personally in to see Tony Perkins. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. The next day, I bought her a blue and white Penn State hoodie sweatshirt and I was going to hang on to it because I knew I was crashing and burning and I did. I flunked out of Penn State, but I kept that hoodie because I knew on the horizon I was going to be moving to LA and extremely soon. I, my mother, I stalled my mother on my grades and I kept saying, oh, they're coming. This was before the internet. So, you know, your grades got mailed to you. And over that Christmas break, uh, between the first and second semester, I just totally waited for the grades to come. And I got a hold of them and I hid them. And by the first week of January, after New Year's, my mother is asking, where are your grades? Why aren't your grades here? I said, well, they'll, they'll be coming, I'm sure. Blah, 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 blah. You always make up the excuses. I was just stalling. I had no plan. My mom eventually is just going to say, I want those grades. Well, no, my mom went above and beyond. And she just called Penn State. Since she paid the bill... Uh, she got the grades. And here's my point. I came home one afternoon. I was working over the Christmas break. And I came home from work and my mother was in the kitchen. And I'll never forget it. She was crying. She had been crying. And I walked in and I said, what's, what's wrong? And she said, I got your grades. I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, I know you already got your grades. And she goes, I already know that you, you know, you know that you have failed out of school. She goes, you have a GPA of about a 1.4, if that. And I was kind of standing in the kitchen trying to still play dumb. And my mother, here's what it came down to. She never screamed at me. She didn't throw anything. She didn't tell me I was an idiot. She didn't berate me. She had the grades. She produced the grades from her pocket. And she looked at me and she said, and I'll never forget it. I should have just taken that tuition money and set it on fire. And as I used to say to people, and still do if anybody listening, there are very few things worse than seeing your mother cry other than knowing you are the reason why she is crying. And I was that reason. I wanted her to scream at me, yell at me, something like that, anything, but to sit there at that table because my mom worked three jobs 
And that's not this uphill both ways in snow shit. My mom worked three jobs as a waitress before she became a nurse. She put herself back through nursing school to put that money away for me so I could go to college. She wanted me to be the first to graduate college with a degree. And I blew it. And that's when I knew standing in that kitchen that day, my only recourse is to go to Los Angeles and become a gigantic hit and uh, success to prove to my mother that this was not all in vain. And my mom even said to me, she's like, and what do you have to show for it? A girlfriend, this cheerleader girl you were dating, what else? Nothing. You have zero to show for it. You couldn't even go to class. And the reason why I failed on that is, I think I said this in my previous podcast, and that is while I was smart enough to know to show up because of the syllabus, gave you the dates for the quizzes and tests, if you miss three classes without a medical excuse, it's automatic failure. And my one professor said that to me. He said, you know, we're a small campus here. And he said, it doesn't take word long for word to spread around. And he goes, your other professors, I'm sure, have taken the liberty of outwitting you. And that is you miss more than three classes without an excuse, you automatically fail. And that's what happened. So even though I had an A in my English class, the professor failed me. So that's why I came home. I think it was like a 1.4 or a 1.1, but I was instantly on academic probation and knowing I was crashing and burning and not coming back. That phone call to California was kind of like throwing down the gauntlet. I had no choice. I had to leave. It was fight or flight. I didn't have it in me to fight to regain my academic status. My roommates had already applied and gotten accepted to transfer out to the main campus. I would be stuck at Hazleton another year. Even my ex-cheerleading girlfriend was heading out to main campus. It would just be me, that loser guy with a whole new batch of freshman roommates, and I'm the loser that flunked and had to stay longer. I wasn't going to be that guy. So I left, and I will leave you with this here for this episode. I still worked. I came home, and I worked. I worked at a video rental store where I just worked and socked away money. And finally, when I had saved up about $3,000, I came home to my mom from the bank one night and I said, I'm gonna move to California. I'm gonna move to Los Angeles. And my mother said, when? Now it was like a Monday or Tuesday and I said, Friday. My mom was like, what? I had already bought the ticket. It was a Delta ticket. The first time I was ever going to fly on a, on a jet across country to a state I've never been to in my life. I had no apartment. I had nothing out there. And I said, I'm going to move to California. And that's what I did. So I will pick up on my next episode, continuing my flight to cinema and to show you how I blew it out in California as well too. However, I got to have lunch and walk the studio lot with a very famous horror icon that I think you can guess who it was. So I'll leave you with that. This is Harrison Smith, thanking you once again for your time. Wherever you are listening, I hope you and yours are well, healthy, and safe. I look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.